Grab a Bible and turn to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. Before we get to our text today, I wanted to share with you a little bit about something that I've been going through as a dad now. I've learned what it means now to be my son's coach. And that is quite an experience. In fact, uh, DJ and Bennett, my son Bennett and DJ from Dustin Lissa Rose Pink, they're on the same team. And I've got some pictures here. There they are at practice. We're the Green Gators. We're a soccer team. And let's see, there's a few others there. There's, there they are uh, getting a little water break. There DJ's getting his water and Bennett's over there on the right. There's, there's uh, me teaching Bennett how to do a throw-in. So we're uh, learning all the basics. There's another action shot up next. There's Bennett and DJ getting ready to play. And then, and then this, is, uh, this is an interesting one. Bennett's on the left just kind of standing around. And then DJ's on the ground, like grabbing his ankle, like, oh, oh, you know, kind of like his dad. Um, and uh, where's Dustin? Is he in the back counting? He's counting money back there. I, I'm ripping him and he's not even in here. And then there's my son. That's his favorite position on the field. That's his absolute favorite position. And then one more, uh, there's one of me uh, kind of coaching there. We'll, we'll leave that one up there for just a second. But there's one drill in particular. There's a drill that I've been, I've been trying to get the kids to, to shoot the ball in the goal. They just kind of stand there and look at it. So the best way I can do this is, come on out here, Doug. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to teach you guys this drill. All right, you guys ready for this? Thank you, Doug. Appreciate that. I need, uh, I need two volunteers. Come on now, two volunteers. I need two soccer volunteers. John Topitzer, step on up. John Topitzer. And uh, Aaron Bennett, come on over, Aaron. All right, all right, here we go. Here we go. And this right here, Aaron, you know what this ball's from? This is from the 1999 Women's World Cup team right here, all right? There you go. And John, you just get the uh, regular ball. All right, buddy. Now, listen, I want you guys to go all the way to the back. All right. All the way to the back. Take it back there. All right. Come on. Now, I'm going to set up this. This is called a pug goal. All right. P-U-G. The, the little tiny goals that, uh, that you know, the kids get to play with. So uh, we're going to set the pug goal right here. Now, listen, this is important. I was going to set it up in front of the Lord's Supper table, but I realized that that might be problematic. So here's the goal. Now listen, we're going to go one at a time, and the object here, other than to score a goal, is to do it in an efficient manner. You see, my kids, as they dribble down the field, they just kind of, they're kind of looking, and so I taught them a drill that we would do a countdown in practice. I would start counting, five, four, three, two, one, and when I got to one, they had to shoot and score a goal. And if they didn't shoot, then they had to go to the back of the line. So they only had five seconds to score. So John, John, you only have five seconds to score here, John. Do you think you can do it in five seconds? All right, now listen, folks, we're going to count it down. All right, ready? So John, when we start the countdown, you can start dribbling. Are you ready? On the count of three, we'll start counting from five. Uh, Let me say that again. On the count of three, we'll start counting from five. All right, ready? One, two, three. Five, four, three... Two. Oh, nice shot, John. Nice shot. All right, Aaron. Here we go, Aaron. He, he, he was trying to angle it a little more than normal here. He wanted you to, to miss this one, but I want to give you a good shot at it, all right? So here we go, Aaron. Are you ready for it? Now this, mind you, Aaron just had a baby how many weeks ago? 
And John, I mean, you know, not, not so much, but... So, let's see if Aaron can do it, alright? On the count of three, we'll count down. Ready? Okay, one, two, three. Five, four, three, two, one. Oh, it's a goal! <laughs> Excellent job, Aaron. Here, you get a, you get a candy, Aaron. I, I got a, I got some candy for you. All right, you don't even have to say a memory verse. Thank you. And John, here's a here's a pink candy for you, buddy, back here. All right, all right. There you go. Give him a big hand. Give him a big hand. Ah, that was fun. So why do I bring this up, right? Why do I bring up this soccer drill? Well, this soccer drill is something that we did as a team that, that finally they got it. When they, when they saw the drill, they realized how to perform in the game. And until then, the kids would often, they'd walk up to the goal and they'd look at it. And I'd say, shoot, shoot! And they'd be kind of like, you know... But when I started the countdown, the kids got it. Now, the countdown wasn't for the game, to be clear. The countdown was specifically meant for practice. But it was used to prepare for the game. The drill was for practice. But its final intent was to prepare for the game. And so also in today's study in the book of Daniel, chapter 8, we are going to read a portion of Scripture that serves as a drill, a practice run on the final end game of human history. To be clear, the text we read this morning is is not the final game, but it is an important practice run in the history of what is to come. The title of the, the message that I'm in right now, we're in a series of messages entitled The Ram, the Goat, and the Little Horn. And these are taken from Daniel chapter 8. Some of the uh, animals in, in, in this horn that we find in Daniel 8. And this is part 3 and the third and final part of that series, A Practice Run of the Final End. A Practice Run of the Final End. We've gone through three parts now. Uh, part 1 uh, was... Uh, a special study that we did together, putting the prophetic pieces together. Remember that was a few weeks back when we all, in your, in, in your own seats, you were finding uh, what the ram and what the goat meant from your own study. And then last week, we considered part two. We considered who Antiochus was. Antiochus Epiphanes. We realized that he is a prelude to Antichrist. And he is the one mentioned of in Daniel 8. And here today, part three, a practice run of the final end is what we will be studying this morning. So let's all stand as we read God's Word today. Uh, We're going to start in verse 15, and I'll read, and you can follow along in your Bible or on the screen behind me. But Daniel chapter 8, beginning in verse 15, Daniel writes this, Then it happened, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning, that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai who called, who called out and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. And so he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was afraid. And I fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. Now as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me 
And he stood me upright. And he said, look, I'm making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation. For at the appointed time, the end shall be. Verse 20, the ram which you saw, having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. And the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. Verse 23, and in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise having fierce features, who understands sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. He shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without human means." And the vision of the evenings and the mornings which was told is true. Therefore, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. And afterward I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that You would guide our eyes and our ears, open our ears, Lord, to Your truth. Help us to see, Father, how this portion of Your Word is a practice run on the final end game. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Back to verse 15. Daniel writes, Then it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning, that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man, And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai River who called out and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. And so he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was afraid and I fell on my face. Here we have Daniel. Remember where we are in human history. We are at about 550 B.C. Daniel is still under the king of Babylon. In particular, King Belshazzar. And he's having a vision during this period of time. A vision of the future. Of future kings and kingdoms. And in this portion of the vision, it says that I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. The appearance of a man. And then he heard another man's voice from a distance. He says, a voice from between the banks of the Ulai River, which was in the Persian city of Susa or Shushan. And this voice from a distance gave a command to the one standing before Daniel. And the command was this, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So here we have three, three people in, in view here. We have Daniel, who's standing next to the Ulai River. We have someone standing right next to him who has the appearance of a man. Later we're going to learn now that he is in fact an angel. And then there's someone in a distance further away down the river between the banks of the Ulai River calling out to, to, Gabe, to, to an angel standing beside Daniel. And he says, Gabriel, Gabriel, make this man, Daniel, understand the vision. Gabriel. 
This probably isn't the first time you've heard that name in Scripture, but it is the first time that name is mentioned in Scripture. It comes from the Hebrew word Gabel El. Excuse me, Gaber El. Gaber meaning strength. El meaning God. The strength of God. Gabriel. Where else do we see the name Gabriel in Scripture? We see it in the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice who appeared to Mary. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a virgin. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son. And you shall call His name Jesus. And He'll be great. He'll be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give Him the throne of His father David. And He will reign over the house of Jacob and of His kingdom. There will be no end. This is where you've heard Gabriel before. He was the one who appeared to Mary. And here we see, and can be reasonably sure, seeing as how he's only mentioned in, in two sections of Scripture, in Daniel and in Luke, we can be reasonably sure that this Gabriel of Daniel is also the same Gabriel of the Gospel of Luke. Both Daniel and Mary found themselves in the presence of an angel sent by God to give them prophetic truth and understanding. Both Daniel and Mary were initially afraid. They were fearful when Gabriel came to them. But Luke says, Luke says that Mary was troubled, but Gabriel quickly offers her words of comfort. says, don't be afraid. Daniel 8.17 indicates that, that Daniel fell on his face in fear, but in time the angel brought him words of comfort and hope as well. Two things are especially noteworthy of the mentioning of Gabriel in Daniel 8. Number one, he had the appearance of a man. Now, it's fascinating because oftentimes we think of angels as being uh, so otherly that, that we wouldn't even recognize them. But just the opposite is often the case. In fact, here it is indicated that he looks like a man, has the appearance of a man, and yet is an angel. And secondly, what's noteworthy is that he was commanded by another to speak to Daniel. Well, this command by another indicates superiority, does it not? You know, we, we give commands to those who are inferior to us. Maybe if we were the boss at work and we have an employee, we can give the command. But for the employee to give the boss the command, that wouldn't make much sense. So here we have someone far off down the banks of the Ulai River calling out to Gabriel, giving him a command. Who could have given him this command? Who could have possibly been higher than the angel Gabriel? Any, any thoughts? Jesus. Certainly. Certainly Jesus could have given the command. Would there be, would there be perhaps any other that could, could have given the command besides the Lord God or Jesus? Michael. Good. Michael is called the archangel in, in the book of Jude. And so Michael is known also as the chief prince in Daniel chapter 12. And so, it could have been that Michael gave the command. You know, we can't be sure who gave the command. Suffice to say that, that they were superior to Gabriel. Um, but perhaps it was Christ. Or perhaps it was the angel Michael. We can't be sure. Later, um, excuse me, another, another option... Uh, uh, excuse me. Who gave, who gave the command, though, is not of utmost importance. Who gave the command is, is of, of secondary importance. But what happens next 
is of significance to us. Just as he was commanded to do, the angel Gabriel spoke to Daniel and he helped him understand the vision that he had seen. Notice what he says in verse 17 of chapter 8. It says, But he touched me, Daniel writes, and he stood me upright. And he said, look, I'm making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation. For at the appointed time, the end shall be. Now, there's a few things that are interesting about this next portion in the book of Daniel chapter 8. But before we get to this portion, it would be helpful to pause and to refresh our memory as to what the vision exactly was. We've, we've come through it in previous Sundays, and we've gone through it in, in the earlier parts of chapter 8. But just for a moment, let us refresh our memory as to the nature of this vision. And actually, Gabriel does it for you. Notice verse 20. Gabriel says this, he says, "...the ram which you saw, having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. And the male goat is the kingdom of Greece." The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. So here we have a, a recap. And, and Daniel's fond of these recaps. But he, here's a recap of the vision that we've looked at in Daniel 8. The recap is this. We have two animals, a ram representing Medo-Persia and a goat representing Greece. In the middle of the goat, there's a horn, a large horn. It represents the first king of Greece, Alexander the Great. And then from that horn comes four other horns, representing four divisions of the Grecian Empire that occurred after Alexander the Great's death, precisely as it was in history. And here Daniel is seeing this some 200 years before it happens. What was prophecy for Daniel is now history to us. And we've come to learn last week that history demonstrates the identity of one of the little horns that come out of the four horns. So of, of, we have the large horn of Alexander the Great, out of whom comes four smaller horns, the division of the kingdom of Greece, out of which comes one little horn. And we learn the identity of that little horn in chapter 8. It is none other than the person of Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes, king of the Greek Seleucid Empire from 175 to 164 B.C. That's a coin there that Antiochus uh, minted. And on it was mentioned uh, his name and a little uh, nickname beside it. It said, King Antiochus, God Manifest. King Antiochus, God manifest. He nicknamed himself Epiphanes, meaning manifest. Theos Epiphanes, God manifest. Everything mentioned in Daniel chapter 8, particularly from verses 9 to 12, line up perfectly with the person of Antiochus Epiphanes. But now, that raises some questions. Because you see, Antiochus lived in a time and a place that was some 200 years before Jesus. Now, if you jump back to verse 17 though, look at verse 17. It says, But Gabriel said to me, Understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. Now, as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep, my face to the ground, but he touched me, stood me upright, and he said, Look, I'm making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation. For at the appointed time, the end shall be. Well, this raises some questions. If the vision of Daniel 8 
refers to a time period that for you and I ended some 2,200 years ago. Why then does the angel Gabriel refer to it as the time of the end? Three times. He says in verse 17, he says the vision refers to the time of the end. In verse 19, he says it's the latter time of indignation. And later on in verse 19, at the appointed time, the end shall be. So let me repeat the the problem, the dilemma. If the vision of Daniel 8 refers to Antiochus Epiphanes, a cruel ruler who lived 2,200 years ago, why then does Gabriel indicate that this vision pertains to the end? Whenever you come across a portion of Scripture that refers to the end, uh, you need to pause, as you should with many other words in Scripture for that matter. In fact, we have, uh, there's, there's a common knee-jerk reaction uh, to a lot of words in Scripture. Let me show you a few of them. How about salvation? Um, there's a common reaction to the word salvation. Baptism. Fire. Dead. Day of the Lord. The end. All these words, these are key buzzwords in Scripture. And when we see them, the, the reader of Scripture automatically has this, they, they want to just pull a definition out right away. When in fact, each of these words can mean a variety of different things. Salvation, just to take salvation for instance. It can mean salvation from hell. It can mean salvation in this life. It can mean salvation unto good health. It can mean a great deal of things. So you ask the question, saved unto what? The, the word dead. The word dead can mean eternal de- eternally dead, physically dead, spiritually dying. Dead to what is the question. The day of the Lord, baptism, fire. Fire can mean hellfire. It can also mean a fire of purification. And so also, when we come to the phrase, the end, or the last days, or the day of the Lord for that matter, we need to pause and ask ourselves, okay, the end, the end of what? The end of what? Read it in context and try to figure out what is Gabriel speaking of when he uses the phrase, the end? And not surprisingly, the angel Gabriel answers our very question. Notice again, verses 20, we'll go to the the early part of 23. He he explains the vision. He says, the ram which you saw, having the two horns, they they are the kings of Media and Persia. The male goats, the kingdom of Greece. The large horn between its eyes is the first king, Alexander. As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms, the division of the Grecian Empire, shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. Verse 23, And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise. What has Gabriel just said there? What has he just indicated to us? He's used a phrase, the latter time that is in keeping with the words he just used earlier, the time of the end, the latter time of indignation. But what did he say about this latter time in verse 23? He said that in making it quite plain, he says he's referring to the end of that kingdom. And in the latter time of their kingdom. Whose kingdom? Whose kingdom? Greece. In the latter time of the Grecian kingdom, the one that comes out of the four divisions, that little horn that comes 
out of one of the four divisions of the Grecian Empire, in the latter time of that kingdom, a king shall arise. The little horn. Antiochus Epiphanes of Daniel chapter 8. Gabriel himself bears witness to what is the end. To what is the latter time. And he's not referring to the very last day and that final world ruler whom we know as Antichrist. Now he's going to allude to him. But in particular, Gabriel interpreting the vision that Daniel has had says, look, I'm speaking of the end. I'm speaking of the latter time of indignation. And this latter time pertains to the end of that kingdom. While bearing remarkable, remarkable similarity to how Jesus and Paul described the last days, Gabriel's prophecy remains focused primarily on the finality of Antiochus Epiphanes and the kingdom of Greece. On the finality of Greece's occupation of the Jews and of the land of Israel. And in fact, the death of Antiochus Epiphanes did mark a great turning point in world history, particularly in the history of the Jews. Remember that we learned that Antiochus Epiphanes, according to history and according to the stories of the Maccabees and of Josephus, the great historian of that day, Antiochus Epiphanes, he walked in to the temple in Jerusalem And he slaughtered a pig on the altar of the temple in mock sacrifice. An act that became known as the Hasychus Mesomim, the abomination of desolation. And within days, a small band of Jewish patriots led by a man by the name of Judas Maccabees, they rose up and they fought and they defeated Antiochus, winning Israel's independence. Antiochus and Greece were never the same after that. Their end had come. And that's precisely what Gabriel is addressing as he speaks of the time of the end. Notice verse 23. We'll continue all the way through. And in the latter time of their kingdom, that is to say the kingdom of Greece, when the transgressors, we'll figure out who those are, have reached their fullness, a king shall arise. This is Antiochus Epiphanes. Having fierce features, who understands sinister schemes, His power shall be mighty, but not by His own power. He shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Through His cunning, He shall cause deceit to prosper under His rule. And He shall exalt Himself in His heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes. But He shall be broken without human means." Gabriel interprets for Daniel. He says, in the latter time of Greece, when sin has reached its height, a king shall arise. Whose sin was this? Well, to be, to be sure, uh, the people of the land of Palestine, uh, both Jews and Greeks, were very sinful at this day and age. Uh, you may recall that Antiochus appointed Uh, certain members of the Jewish people to be these puppet priests for him. Priests who would grab a little from the the religion of the Greeks and grab a little from the Jewish religion and and cause a, a, a syncretism of sorts between the two. There was sin and error on all sides. But in particular, too, the Jewish people were trying to find their way 
And it seems to me that, uh, that not only is this referring to the sin of the Gentiles, but also to the sin of the Jewish people at that time. And that God was using Antiochus, just as He used many other rulers, um, to bring about discipline and correction in His people. True to form, this Antiochus, this, this, this uh, final king of Greece, of the Seleucid Empire, he, will have, he had fierce features carried out sinister schemes. He was a man who uh, knew how to um, get his way. He knew how to be conniving and cunning. He was mighty in power, Gabriel says, but not by his own power. What does that refer to? Well, remember back in verse 12. Look at Daniel 8, verse 12. It says, because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices. An army was given over to him. In other words... His power was granted to him for a time. It was not his own. He was propped up for a time and a purpose. And with that army, he wreaked havoc and destruction. Verse 24 of Daniel 8, He shall destroy fearfully. He shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. He persecuted the Jews. Through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper. And then he even exalted himself as high as God. He went into the temple. He sacrificed a pig. He erected a statue of Zeus. In verse 25 of Daniel 8, it is said that he exalted himself in his heart. He shall even rise against the prince of princes. But Gabriel concludes, then he shall be broken. Broken without human means. Is this true of history? Yes. Not one, not one year after the revolt of the Maccabees, the Jewish patriots who wanted to reclaim the temple, reclaim their land, not one year after the revolt, Antiochus Epiphanes died in 164 B.C. of an unknown yet hideous disease, no doubt a part of God's judgment upon him. At least that's what the Jews saw in the book of Maccabees, 2 Maccabees, chapter 9. Notice what is written of Antiochus. It says, Antiochus said in his arrogance, I will make Jerusalem the common graveyard of the Jews as soon as I arrive there. So, the all-seeing Lord, the God of Israel, struck him down with an unseen but incurable blow. For scarcely, scarcely, had he uttered those words when he was seized with excruciating pain in his bowels and sharp internal torment, the body of this, of this impious man swarmed with worms. And while he was still alive in hideous torments, his flesh rotted off so that the entire army was sickened by the stench of his corruption. Really nice. Shortly before, he had thought that he could reach the stars of heaven. And now... No one could endure to transport the man because of this intolerable stench. So this murderer and blasphemer, after extreme sufferings such as he had inflicted on others, died a miserable death in the mountains of a foreign land. Sounds like a fairy tale, right? That was meant to be a joke. Um, didn't go over too well. What a death! I mean, if this is even halfway accurate, what a way to go! Here we have the Maccabees writing in triumph. The Jewish patriots writing in triumph saying, yes, look, the end of this man. Broken without human means. 
as he, as on, on his lips were a desire to come and to crush the Maccabean revolts. He had heard from a distance, he had heard of what the Jews had done with Judas Maccabees and, and their, their band of farmers and, and small, a small group of Jewish men that rose up in triumph over the Grecian armies in Jerusalem. And he had heard about it and he said, I'm going to come and I'm going to make the Jews a graveyard. And as the words were on his mouth, he was stricken with a disease and died shortly after. Broken without human means. Gabriel concludes his interpretation in verse 26. And the vision of the evenings and the mornings which was told is true. Therefore, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. And now I, Daniel, I fainted and was sick for days. Afterward, I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. Gabriel indicates that this vision that Daniel has been revealed is true. And he asked him to seal it up, to secure it. For it refers to many days in the future. And Daniel, having heard, having seen the vision, having heard the interpretation of Gabriel, he fainted and was sick for days, after which he arose and went about the king's business. Astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. You might say, well, how did he not understand it? He, um, Gabriel explained it all to him. Well, in part, he did. Sure, he explained Media and Persia. He explained Greece. But he didn't explain the exact identity of this little horn, Antiochus Epiphanes. He didn't name him by name. He didn't go into great details of the great atrocities that the Jewish people, Daniel's brothers and sisters, would endure. And no doubt this, this contributed to Daniel's faintness and light, uh, just an inability, a, a, a sickness within him, not knowing what lay in store for his people, his Jewish brothers and sisters. What do we learn from this vision in Daniel 8? We've gone now three parts through it. How do we take this home with us? Why do we preach this today? Daniel 8, friends, though prophecy to Daniel, is now history to us and was a practice run of the end. Antiochus Epiphanes was a prelude to Antichrist. All that you're seeing here, all that you're seeing in history, for Daniel it was, it was ahead, and now for you and I it's history. All that we're seeing is a practice run, terrible as it was, of what is to come in the last days at the final end of human history. Some examples on your outline. Antiochus came, quote, when the transgressors reached their fullness. So also a great apostasy will precede Antichrist. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I don't have it behind me. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I want to read some of the words of Paul as we close out this, this morning's message. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 3. Paul writes this, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3. He says, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day, and he's speaking now of the final day, 
the, the, the final day uh, of the Lord's return, Jesus' second coming. That day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Now notice the words falling away. This is referring to specifically the rapture. The words falling away, or in other translations, apostasy. Paul expressed Jesus as well. When Jesus said, hey, in the latter days, the hearts of many will grow what? Cold. Paul refers to it as the falling away or the apostasy. Antiochus, 2,200 years ago, in the land of Palestine, leader of Greece, when the transgressors, when sin had reached its boiling points, he came unto power. So also, a great apostasy will precede the Antichrist coming to power. Are we to expect the Christian church to grow, to get stronger, to get more vital and vibrant and spread throughout all the world before the return of Christ? Well, in part it will. The Gospel of the Kingdom will go to the ends of the earth. But the vitality of the church, according to Scripture, is likely to weaken. And the love of many, even in those in the church, is likely to grow cold, according to Jesus. Paul says there's going to be a coming apostasy. What will it take for you to walk away from the church? Will you be in that number of those who fall away at the time of the end? Notice another similarity. Antiochus' mighty power was not merely his own. It was bestowed upon him. It was given to him for a time. So also, Antichrist's power will derive from Satan himself. Notice verse 9 of 2 Thessalonians. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all powers and lies, uh, signs and lying wonders. Satan will inspire this man's power. He will be the one behind his efforts. It won't be the, the power of the Antichrist alone. He will be inspired by Satan himself. How about this one? Antiochus persecuted the Jews. He profaned the temple. So also, Antichrist will seek to destroy the Jewish people and the religion. I don't leave a reference here because there's too many to leave. It's the story of the Bible. The persecution of the Jews. God's people. And Antichrist, when He comes, He will do this like you've never seen before. We're seeing it in our day in part. We're seeing the persecution and the, the despising of the Jews. They give up. Uh, the, the Jewish people today, their uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, he gives up one man. Excuse me, he gives up a thousand Palestinians. Terrorists, many of them. In exchange for one Israeli soldier. And yet, Israel's the one that uh, are uncompromising. Right? According to the, according to the world. According to the United Nations. It's Israel's the one that's provoking the Palestinians. And yet they're the ones that gave up a thousand in exchange for one man. I, I said when it happened, I said, I do not understand that. I do not understand how you could give up a thousand prisoners in exchange for one man. But then I remembered that Jesus Christ, He gave up His life for the whole world. Amen? whole world. How much less for just a thousand? 
Antiochus, he nicknamed himself Theos Epiphanes, God manifest. So also Antichrist will exalt himself as God. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 4. This man who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. And finally, Antiochus was broken without human means according to Daniel 8. So also Antichrist will be consumed by the breath of the Lord's mouth. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 8. And when the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of His mouth and destroy with the brightness of His coming. Friends, the story and the lesson of Daniel chapter 8 and the vision that we've been meticulously going through as a church, it is a practice run. Terrible as it was, awful as it was, 2,200 years ago, atrocities that are unspeakable. He killed tens of thousands of Jews. And yet it's just a practice run on what we will see on the last day when the man of lawlessness, when the son of perdition is revealed, when the great apostasy happens, when Jesus comes and the church is taken up in the rapture, at that time, there will be trouble on earth unlike ever before in human history. And you and I know what it will be like because we are reading the playbook. We're practicing the drill as we study the book of Daniel. Thank God, thank God that He will keep us from that day of wrath according to Revelation chapter 3. That we will not have to face the Antichrist and his schemes. Those of you who have believed in Jesus as your Savior, you'll be raptured up. You'll be taken up with the Lord when He comes. But for those who are left, what Israel saw 2,200 years ago will be magnified to an innumerable degree here on this earth. A practice run leading up to the end game that will be a sight unlike any other. I pray today for all of us that we would be ready to meet our Maker. That we would be ready by simple faith in Jesus Christ to know that our, secure, our eternal destiny is secure. That we won't have to face that day. You can know for sure that you will avoid that day of judgment if you would but believe in Jesus as your Savior. Have you done that? If you haven't, I urge you to do it this day. It will be the best decision you've ever made. Let's close in prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we read of what is to come. And it causes us to have great trepidation. It should, Lord. Because what the Jews experienced 2,200 years ago was unfathomable. What they experienced not 60 plus years ago with, with uh, Nazi Germany was unfathomable. And yet, what is to come will exceed both of those events. God, we can't even imagine. But Your Word tells us about this prelude. Your Word gives us the playbook. We know the drill. We know what the practice looks like. And Father, we want to be ready for the game. The end game. We know, Lord, that by Your Word, Your Son has said that he who believes in Jesus has passed from death to life. 
and shall not come into judgment. We believe according to Your Word that those of us who are believers in Jesus will be kept from the day of wrath. We cling to those promises, Lord. And we warn others about them, knowing full well that for those who do not believe in Jesus, a dire, dire future awaits them. God, help us to be ready. To be ready for the future. To warn others, our family, our friends, our neighbors, all of those who need to hear that Jesus Christ is the Lord, the Savior, the One who can give us everlasting life by faith in Him. And that if we don't believe in Him, we will be deluded by a liar, a great desolator, Antichrist, the man of sin, the lawless one. Lord, help us not to be deceived. Let us cling to Your truth. Let us know the practice that we might be ready for the end game. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.